Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 17, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand, your staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of God. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing on his word. Our great Father and God, we come to you and give thanks that you have revealed yourself and your word. We long here this morning that you will teach us by your spirit. Even on this Pentecost Sunday, we long that you would give us open hearts, open minds to hear what you have to say to us. And we pray, our Father, that we would know that you have been in our midst. We thank you that you have promised that your word would never return to you empty, 
but it will always accomplish the purpose for which you sent it out. So we do ask you now, our gracious Father, that you would open your word to us and teach us that we might live as those who've been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, it is indeed a great privilege to be with you once again. It was great to be with many of you on Friday evening and enjoy some time together and to catch fish and whatnot, getting lines tangled and untangled and seeing that the kids really got to enjoy themselves as well as the adults being together. You know, when we talk about history, God's people often speak about history, and they say, uh, this is the worst time that we have ever lived in the time of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to make a statement like that here uh, this morning, but I do want to say to us here this morning that, and I realize it's a broad brushstroke, But the church of Jesus Christ finds herself very confused. I'll give you an example of that here this morning just by asking two questions before we begin to look at our text. But I would ask two questions for us, and that is, uh, the first one, what is the worship of God to look like in the church? That would be number one. And then the second one, Uh, would be, what is the nature of the true Christian life? I'm not going to try to answer both of those questions. I want to concentrate here uh, this morning on this second question. And I hope to take it out of our text here uh, this morning. And I know, as you've looked at the title of today's message, uh, what is the... um, what, is the, what the sermon is, the importance of being up in arms. It's a play on words in one sense, but in another sense, it's a very serious subject. I mean it with all honesty, the importance of being up in arms. And you have heard it about Moses having his hands up in the air, being helped by Aaron and her. I want to suggest to us today Now, the lessons of Exodus chapter 17 are as valid today than they were in the time of the Exodus. The context, uh, you can see, is that Israel has come to Rephidim, that is a resting place, that's what Rephidim means. Uh, They've come to Rephidim, they are about to get to Mount Sinai where God is going to give his law, the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden they find as they've come to this place of rest that it's actually a pretty difficult place. There's no water. Moses, how did you dare to bring us here? There's no water here. We demand of you to bring us water. Now mind you, this follows the chapter in which the Lord had been demanded of uh, to give them something to eat. And God gave them manna. He gave them quail. And so here they are, uh, 
They are grumbling in chapter 16. They are grumbling here in chapter 17. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament said that he was the manna that came down from heaven. We want to talk about shadows. We can see that Jesus is represented even in the manna. But here they are in chapter 17, and they start grumbling once again. And Moses comes to the Lord, as you saw in the text, they're about to stone me, they're about to kill me, Lord. And they're about to put him on trial. And God gives them water in a most unusual way. We see Moses raising his rod, striking the rock, and water flows out of it, and the people drink. Well, Moses names the place Massah and Meribah, and those names, by the way, in the scriptures are always important. Massah means to test, and Meribah means to prove, to to dispute, to contend. Of course, they were contending uh, with God. After that, uh, Israel runs into the Amalekites. They come against uh, Israel. We don't know why they attacked them, but they seem to have blindsided them suddenly to come against them. And the children of Amalek, I want to remind us, are the children, the descendants of Esau. Well, what does the word Esau mean? Esau means fleshly or flesh. So here, the Israelites, who are the redeemed of the Lord, come against the flesh. They come against those who are fleshly. And we know the scene. Moses holds up one hand. He gets tired. Aaron and Hur set him down on a rock, and they hold up both of his hands. And as Moses holds up his hand, hands, both of them, uh, they prevail against the war against Amalek. And there is a very noteworthy sentence at the very end of our text. I hope you uh, have your Bibles open and you see it there. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, what value to you and to me is Exodus chapter 17? And I want for us to draw three basic lessons Uh, out of our text here uh, from verses 1 through 3, I want to make this point to us, is that forgetting God is the pathway to put God on trial. Forgetting God is the pathway to put God on trial. And I know that sounds rather strange uh, to our ears, but I think the sentence is very valid today Because we have to keep in contact, we have to keep the context in mind, which is who are the people of Israel? The people of Israel are the redeemed of the Lord. The people of Israel are those who've been brought out of the land of bondage, out of the out of the house of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord viewed them as his people. And here they are, grumbling and complaining. And the application that we should make to ourselves is that we are quite quick to grumble, as Israel did. We are quite quick to complain even as they did. 
even calling into question the wisdom of God's ordained servants. You have Moses, you see in verse 1, Al, the congregation of the people of Israel, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Moses is under God's commandment, under God's direction, to bring them to the land in which they were now sitting or being, which was in Rephidim itself. So Moses had heard the voice of God, and he led them exactly where God had ordained them to be. And how many times do we not resort to grumbling and complaining when God has ordained the very situation that we find ourselves in? For whatever reason we find ourselves in any particular situation, We have failed to remember that our God is 100% sovereign. It's rather ironic that we confess that he's sovereign, and yet we find ourselves so free to grumble and to complain about a situation that we are in that is of great trial in our lives. There is so much in the church of Jesus Christ today to what I want to call fairy tale Christianity. You know what fairy tale Christianity is, don't you? The belief that Christians live happily ever after. That is true in an eternal sense. But there are those who proclaim in the, their gospel today that Christians ought to live happily ever after. That, my friends, is fairy tale Christianity. Well, you say, well, I don't, I don't believe in fairy tale Christianity. Well, maybe you have a Burger King faith. A Burger King faith is you can have it your way. But you see, that's not what the scriptures teach as to what the Christian life is all about and what is the true nature of the Christian life. What I'm taking from our text here, forgetting God as the pathway to put God on trial, is that I want you and I to see that progress in the Christian life is by degrees. Look at our text, verse 1 through 3. When all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And so you see, we as Christians, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are renewed by the work of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that we are to grow as Christians. And if we have been Christians for a fair length of time, we realize that this is how God teaches us. This is how God deals with us. We leave the wilderness of sin by degrees. And we grow in our Christian life. There is struggle, there is testing, there is trial. There are all kinds of problems, even as we look to the day of our final rest. We find rest in Jesus, we find a rephidim in Jesus Christ. And in that rest, we find trial, we find troubles, 
we find challenges and we do get to experience something of heaven on this side of the grave. Every once in a while we get to experience something of the eternal rest to which we're looking. But you see, the Israelites were feeling themselves, how cruel, how cruel that we've been brought into the place where there's no water. Moses, how could you do this? And it wasn't really Moses that was on trial. Who was it? They were putting God on trial, were they not? And they were saying to God, God, how did you dare to even bring us here? What's the answer for this for you and for me, dear ones? Is that we are called to do this, to willingly and sweetly submit to the paths in which God has ordained us to be. You see, God has one intent in our lives as Christians, and that is that he is going to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ regardless of the cost. Regardless of the cost. And he will conform us to the image of Jesus. We can buck, as it were. We can complain. We can grumble. But to contend with God is to contend with the Almighty. And he will have his way. Dear ones, if we know nothing, of trial, of struggle, of grace being given in the Christian life, as we go through these times of testing, I fear we know nothing of the Christian life. This is the Christian life. We are called by grace to sweetly submit to the hand of God in our lives, no matter the path in which that God leads us, no matter in the places in which God causes us in our travels to that final resting place to be. He says, I want you to submit to my hand. And that verse of Scripture is so precious that we are to cast all of our cares upon him for he cares for us. And it is something we are so quick to forget. But let me move on. The second thing that we are uh, to learn from our text, which I would take from verses 4 through 7, and that is, is that we are called to trust in God's provision. We are to trust in God's provision. This is a phenomenal scene before us. Moses is feeling that he's ready to be stoned. And God doesn't allow himself, as it were, to be put on trial. He just says, Moses, I want you to take the rod of judgment, which you struck the Nile with. I want you to take the rod of judgment, and I want you to strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water will flow out of it. And we read that Israel drank 
What's the shadow that we're seeing here? We're seeing the shadow of the judgment of God falling upon the rock, Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is our ultimate answer. He is the rich provision for you and for me who are the vilest of sinners who have nothing to offer to God. And we're to rest in the very provision that God has for us. Now imagine this. Look at these people. Aren't they a pitiful lot? Can you imagine they're grumbling at what God is doing to them and where God is bringing them? They don't deserve mercy, do they? But how are we any different than they? We're no different than they are. And God so graciously remembers them with his mercy. And he just reinforces what we know out of the New Testament. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. You see, we're already seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful truth. If we are in Jesus Christ here this morning, we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We've taken him at his word. Take my yoke upon you and I will give you rest. We love him because he first loved us. And where we go astray so often is that we fail to drink from the provision that God has given us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on. From verse 8 through the end of the text, you have this whole scenario of the Amalekites fighting with Israel. And we see that Moses is on a rock and we see his hands being lifted up by Aaron and her in the attitude of prayer and the attitude of the hands pointing heavenward, the hands pointing to my hope is in nothing less than your power, God. What's the lesson that we learn from this? Dear ones, it is that the battle with the flesh, remember these are the, the descendants of Esau, the fleshly ones. The battle with the flesh cannot be won without prayer. Where we go wrong as Christians, where the church goes wrong so often is the fact that we forget the life of prayer or we go through the motions with our prayers and we figure that's enough. When in fact what we end up doing is we end up resting in our own strength. We think that we can do it all. I still remember one of our sons, pretty sure it was our middle son. He was learning how to handle a hammer. And I wanted to help him to put the hammer head on the nail. And he would say, Daddy, me do it. Daddy, me do it. And it's as if God is saying, okay then, you do it. And this is where the church in many cases 
has lost its vision of the grandeur of God and the ability of God to bring revival and growth and honest growth in his church and his kingdom is that we forget the prayer. We forget that it is our God who gives us the victory. And I know we mean well when we say there's power in prayer, but dear ones, can I correct our thinking with that? There is no power in prayer. There's power in the God to whom we go to in prayer. And so you see, uh, Amalek is a representation that's a shadow of the flesh. We fight against our own flesh. We fight against the world. We fight against the world, against the devil. And the church is to be the force that goes out into the world. How do we do it? How are we victorious? How is the church going to gain the victory? The church does not gain its victory through strategizing in its own power. The church does not gain the victory by getting together a force of numbers. If we just have thousands and thousands that will come into this church, we'll be able to win the victory. That's not how it's done. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And we are called to fight the battle. We are called to be Joshua's, but we are called to depend on our ultimate Moses, which is Jesus, our ultimate Savior, whoever lives to make intercession for us. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you and I are called to wrestle with our own God. He will do it. We are called to go out as Joshua, as the Israelites, to do battle with our own flesh, with the flesh out there, with the world, with the devil, with all that's taking place in our culture today. And we're to do it, having first met with God, who has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. And he always keeps his promise. Some of you might be thinking, Pastor, I think you're really stretching the text. Well, I beg to differ with you. I'd ask you to look at those last words of our text. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Well, Amalek in one sense is gone. That generation is gone. But the Lord says he has war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's what Amalek represents is that the flesh and God will go to war based on the prayers of his people, based on his people lifting up, as it were, holy hands to heaven above. Lord, only you can do this for us. You know, sometimes we get to the place where we don't know what to do anymore, which is exactly the place that Israel was brought to. We get brought to the place where we are lost without any other resources. Israel had no more resources. They were without water. And they cry out, 
They cried out in a wrong way, admittedly. God was gracious, and he showed them, this is the way. It's through the rock. It's through the water that comes out of the rock. It's through Jesus Christ. And the church is victorious through Jesus Christ. Dear ones, Moses is a shadow of Jesus Christ. He is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I have been told to come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God has ordained that our prayer lives, our prayers are the means of pulling down the blessing of God. May each one of us know what that is in our own lives. May God help us, all of us, that our prayer lives are honed, are sharpened, are made better, and we plead with the only source of blessing, our God himself. Let's pray together. We give thanks to you, our Father, for your goodness and mercy. We do ask of you, our gracious God, that you would be pleased to teach us to pray, that you would be pleased, Lord, to give that we look to you, our help, our strength, our only, our only source. Forgive us, Lord, where we so often look to ourselves and we think that we have it all together. Forgive us, we pray. Look on us for the sake of your Son. We confess to you, we have no water. We have no, no resources of our own. And we ask of you that you would hear our prayer and receive us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.